0: Good morning church. It's wonderful to see you today. I'm thankful for our time together. It is refreshing for me to be here with you and um, I look forward to our time in 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 16 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, verses 10 through 16. I know that Nick will encourage you again as we close the service, but I want to remind you that when we finish the service today, please find someone that you don't know and say hello to them or someone that you may have seen a bunch of times and you can't remember their name. Uh, don't be sorry. Say, I'm so sorry, I can't remember your name. Please tell me your name and get to know someone today and welcome them in the name of Christ Jesus and in his love before you leave this place today. Let's please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-16. through 16. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So verse 10 begins with speaking about this salvation. So We have been speaking for weeks now about the salvation that has come to us from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we've spent many weeks talking about the depth and the breadth and the goodness and the grace that has come to us in this salvation. And so now Peter speaks about how this salvation was not new to them, but it is a salvation that was prophesied from long ago. This was not a new thing to Peter, and Christ Jesus coming on the scene was not something of happenstance, but something that was preordained by the Lord, and the Lord Jesus comes and walks in this salvation. And so what is mentioned here is the prophets, the prophets from the Old Testament. And that it was revealed to those prophets that the Messiah, the Christ, which is what Christ means, the Messiah would come and would suffer and then would be glorified, but they did not know when exactly this would happen. And so there are many parallels between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We now also know many things about what will happen when Christ Jesus comes again, but we do not know when that will happen. And so they were waiting. They were waiting for this suffering Messiah to come. And they searched, that says here, uh, let's see, in verse 10, searched and inquired carefully as to what would happen with this coming of the Messiah. They were seeking the coming of a Savior, but they weren't sure how or when this was going to happen. And in their searching, as it says in verse 12, things were revealed to them. The word revealed speaks to revelation. It's a specific word used in the scripture as God making things known to us. It's a totally different word, different meaning from us digging in to find something and being able to figure it out through our own labors and our own industry. And so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all these many prophets in the Old Testament did not understand the things that they understood about God because they were very smart and they worked very hard, but they sought after Christ Jesus with an earnest heart, but these things were revealed to them or made known to them by God. And so it is a salvation that was planned by the Lord Jesus. The coming of Christ was not a happenstance thing. But what was revealed to these prophets was not fully understood by them. That's what comes out as a part of this passage, is that some things that were revealed to them, that they wrote down, that they spoke to the people, they themselves did not fully understand the implications of these things or how exactly these things were going to work out. I want to read for you. There are many, many different passages I could read to you from the prophets, but one of the most clear is Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to read verses 1 through 12 for you this morning. And these verses jump off the page to us as being about Christ Jesus and his crucifixion. But when Isaiah preached and and, and spoke these things originally to the people of Israel, they were not so clear. And they understood that there was going to be a suffering and then a glory to the Savior that was to come. But how these things were going to work out was not known to them. This is why it was so confusing to the disciples to try to put the pieces together about Jesus saying, I'm going to go suffer and die, and they would say, don't talk like that. That's not, we don't want to hear about you suffering and dying, we want to hear about you reigning and ruling. But this is what Isaiah wrote as a word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So uh, he just jumps off the page, Jesus and the cross and him being crucified with sinners and being silent before his accusers and being a substitutionary atonement for us. And you're like, oh, this is just amazing. And that's part of what Peter is saying here. This was written for our good. It was written, yes, that those in the past might have some sense of what is to come in the future, but it was written for you and for me so that we might see something written many hundreds of years before it happened, and then seeing it come to pass, and that we might have a great sense of understanding that the Lord God is powerfully sovereign over all the affairs of this world. Bringing to pass the first coming of Christ and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. Direction. And then that gives us hope for the second coming of Christ. That Though we are now in the same, same situation that the prophets were, in a sense that we have an understanding of the glory that is yet to come and a sense of how it will come to pass, but we do not understand when it will come to pass. And so these things greatly increase our faith. But he goes on. And he says in verse 12b, those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So, what is he talking about here? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's my understanding that that last section is speaking about the apostles those that were sent to the church in the New Testament, filled by the Holy Spirit to preach the things that they were eyewitnesses of, and they were the ones that through the filling of the Holy Spirit were inspired to write the New Testament scriptures that then become to us uh, similar to the writing of the prophets in the Old Testament, helping us in our time now and moving forward. And so the apostles... uh, Write about something that is so interesting. This last little phrase things into which angels long to look. What an interesting little phrase! Something that kind of shifts your perspective all of a sudden. Angels. We talk a lot about the supernatural, the spiritual things in this world, and it's important for us to not lose sight of them. There is a spiritual world. We, are, we live in an intensely materialistic society, which means we have an intense press from the time you walk out this door to the time you come back here next week to forget all things about God and only live for what is in materially in front of you in the moment and forget about the spiritual. But the Bible is a book that constantly reminds us that there is a spiritual world. Part of that is the reminder that you have a soul that is a part of that spiritual world. And a part of the spiritual realities of the world is angels. We talk about the, the ancient salvation history of God and God working out his plan in the world over time, over decades, over centuries. Angels have always been a part of this plan. Angels are messengers and servants of God. They are seen all throughout the Old Testament when we pass over into the New Testament from the beginning of the the incarnation of Christ Jesus. We see angels involved with delivering messages to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds, all kinds of different angelic messengers doing different things in the New Testament. For Peter himself, who is the author of this letter, twice he was delivered from prison by an angel. And so the guy has first knowledge, firsthand knowledge of what it means to be in the presence of an angel. And yet he says this is something that angels long to look into, which reminds us that angels are not divine. They don't know everything that God knows, and God has not disclosed all of his plans or all of his will to them. They're his servants, and they go and do and deliver the message that he would have for them to deliver, and they do his will and his bidding. But we know that they are a part of this salvation process, in that, not the, in the part of the process, they're part of the joy of the process. In Luke 15 10, it tells us there is rejoicing in heaven by angels when even one person comes to salvation. Isn't that wild? That's really amazing. I mean, they have had a firsthand look at all that Christ Jesus has done to accomplish the salvation of these people. And when one man, woman, boy, or girl comes to salvation, there is rejoicing in heaven over their repentance and faith. And that is an an amazing thing. We know that when Christ Jesus comes again, he will come with the heavenly host, which will be at least all of those angels coming with him. And so angels watch with joy, and yet they are also inquiring, seeking to understand what it is that the Lord is doing and what the complete end of these things will be. And so just a reminder for us this morning of things from the past, things in the present, the mystery of the things of God, and yet the purposes of God being fully carried out according to his will. And so if you didn't see here the, the fact of the Old Testament being written partially for you to increase your faith and to see the working and the coming of Christ Jesus, I want you to at least to see that the Old Testament should not be neglected by you. Many people never read the Old Testament. Uh, Many people never read their Bible in general, but if they do, they'll read in the New Testament because they think the Old Testament is largely irrelevant because they get bogged down in some of the passages that are, you know, related to building buildings and genealogies. But the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it is powerfully the Word of God. And if you have never taken time to read some of these Old Testament prophets, uh, especially the book of Isaiah, more is said about the coming of Christ through the prophet Isaiah than any other uh, prophet in the Old Testament. We have a wonderful commentary by Andrew Davis in our library back there that will help walk you through the, uh, the book of Isaiah if you've never read it. And you can use it as a devotional and go through that over time. I encourage you, go and look at the prophets in the Old Testament. There is spiritual benefit that will come to you because these things were partially written to instruct your soul as to the coming of Christ Jesus. All right, well, we transition going into verse 13. Therefore, anytime you see therefore in the Bible, it's it's a transition. Because of all that we have seen before this, which is talking about this great salvation, this Trinitarian salvation, this work of God the Father, the work of God the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit foretold by the prophets, now come, now accomplished in Christ Jesus. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. What we're gonna see here in verses thirteen and fourteen is three different things about the mind and working in our mind to set our mind upon Christ and to prepare our mind. Prepare your minds for action. The literal translation of this is gird up the loins of your mind. So what in the world is that talking about? Well, Back in the day, they didn't have Nike and Under Armour and all kinds of athletic apparel to go do whatever they're going to do. They all wore like sheet style stuff. They had a toga on or a robe or whatever. And if you're going to go for a run or get into battle or go do some hard work, you've got to gird that mess up. Like somehow you've got to gather it up and like put a belt on and like get yourself ready to go and do what you're going to do. And it's a it's an idea of preparing yourself for some type of action. And so this is talking about the actions of the mind, girding up the, the loins of your mind, preparing your mind for something that's getting ready to happen. We we call it get, get your mind right, like get prepared for what is getting ready to happen. And this is incredibly important. Uh, you know, in thinking about how to illustrate this, I just I don't like to use personal illustrations too much, but I I can't think of anything better than... I've been through a couple different selections in my life, which are like processes where they're trying to get rid of you, and they want you to quit. And you have to at least make it through that to make it to the next step of things. And selections are things that once you go through them, you never want to go through them again. And they're always interesting, but... You prepare physically, you prepare uh, practically, like the stuff you pack, the type of shoes that you wear, you know, all that type of thing. But I'm telling you, having been on the other side of a lot of selections at this point in my life, the most important preparation is the preparation of the mind. You can see incredibly strong, incredibly practically prepared people that are mentally weak and they don't make it through because they break under the pressure. And so the mind is incredibly important preparation of the mind for something like that, you you prepare for the time frame, you know, all right, this is going to be a week, this is going to be a month, you start thinking through that, you prepare to not give up. You prepare to take things one step at a time. I'm going to take one event, one struggle, one issue at a time, and I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen this afternoon or next week. We're going to what is today. But the most difficult parts of those type of events are designed into those type of events, and they're called unknown distance uh, events, which means you start running, or you put your pack on, and you go, and you go for an unknown distance. You have no idea. They don't tell you how long you're going for, so it doesn't matter what you prepared for. You don't, you're going to go until they tell you to stop, and that's always that you go until it's designed to where you're going to be close to your breaking point, and there are certain people that are going to give up, and they're going to quit, and others that aren't, and again, it so often comes down to those that are mentally prepared to continue to go and and go the distance. Many of these events are set up for failure. They're designed to be impossible, to see someone fail, and to see what's going to happen to them mentally when they fail, and they can't do what they're required to do. And is that person going to get angry? Is that person going to blame everyone around them? Is that person going to flat out just give up? Or they're going to be able to absorb that failure, put it behind them, and keep going. All of these things relate to preparation of the mind. And I understand that what we have just been talking about here in the soul is different. We've been talking about the sanctification of the Christian life and the cooperative nature of the sanctification of the Christian life. That it is God's spirit that is strengthening us and empowering us to accomplish what he has put before us. But it is a cooperative thing in that we are given certain commands. And we are commanded to prepare our minds for action. To set our minds on something. And as we'll see, it is going to be to set our mind on Christ Jesus our Lord. But there is very real preparing of your mind for action in everyday life. I, you know, For myself, and I don't know what, I, you got to contextualize this to your situation, but I know that when I come home from work, I have to get my mind right before I go through the door. And when I don't get my mind right before I go through the door, bad things happen. When I carry all the mess from work and all the struggle from work right through the door and dump it on the kitchen table for everybody, it's not good. And so I need to stop in the transition from work to home and prepare my mind, to uh, prepare my mind for action. What is that action? That action is going to be to show love and kindness to my children and to my wife, to hear about their day, to die to myself and hear what's going on with them. And they all know I don't always do a great job with that, and I, I need to do a better job with that. And it's important that we look at what's going on. If we're going to avoid temptation, we're going to have to prepare our mind You don't just stumble through life. If you know what temptation is going to get you, you know where the ditch is, you have to make mental preparation to not go in that direction. Make mental preparation to go in a different way. Preparing your soul for even our gathering here this morning. Each and every one of you should prepare in your own way for coming to church. I prepare in a certain way for coming here. But you also should not just stumble in the door. You should prepare your heart For worship, prepare your children's hearts in a way for worship. That you come into this place with an intentionality to turn your heart toward the Lord. In all these things, what we're doing, I believe, is getting ahead of what is coming. We're living an intentional Christian life. where We are setting our mind upon Christ Jesus with an intentionality that helps us to make it through each and every day in each event of life, as it were. Christianity is worked out in our living, but our living is determined first by what is happening in our mind because what is happening in your mind will be lived out in your body. What you ruminate on in the mind will become a living action. And so prepare your minds for action. Second, be sober-minded, another thing related to the mind, And I believe there's two two different applications to this idea of being sober-minded. The first is just the basic application of not being intoxicated, not being high, not being someone that drunkenness is a part of your life. We cannot uh, live the Christian life and also be a person that is passing in and out of an intoxicated or drunken state. What's the problem with this? Why does the Bible forbid drunkenness? This is one of the sober passages where we are commanded to live a sober life. Because we are commanded as Christians to be those that are self controlled. A few weeks ago, we talked about abiding in Christ and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self control. The Christian life is a life that is to be lived not out of control, but in control. We're to be in control of our faculties through the strengthening and the fruit bearing of the Holy Spirit. Because we know from a Christian outlook on life that when we are out of control, what, is, what will come out of us when we are not living a life submitted to Christ Jesus? Well, it'll be the flesh. It'll be the old man. As it says here later, uh, the passions of our former ignorance. We never default to a neutral position. We are either seeking after Christ and living for him or we're living after the old things and the old passions and the old lusts. And so when we lose self-control of ourselves, we default to sinful things. And so when drunkenness and intoxication and being high enters into our life, what will happen is we will default to sinful things. And if drunkenness is a part of your life, I will guarantee you it will result in lifelong sinful consequences. Things will happen while you are drunk that will cause major problems in your life. And so the scriptures call us to live a sober life when we are in control of ourselves. We are seeking after Christ Jesus. We, have, we are girding the loins of our mind to seek after Christ. And so this always brings into the picture of, well, what is, what is the position on alcohol? And briefly, I'll say this. Those of you that have been around this church long know that we do not take a stance of forbidding alcohol consumption. And there's one basic reason for that. You, it's not a biblical position. You cannot argue that biblically. That the scriptures have all kinds of people, including Jesus himself, uh, providing wine to people uh, it's, it's something that's a part of rejoicing in a certain uh, appropriate situation. It comes down to a convictional issue and not a command issue. Uh, many people have convictions, which is a intentional choice of your own uh, life that you're not going to consume alcohol. And that's totally great, and that's totally fine. But we are going beyond what the Scriptures give us uh a right to do when we press our convictions on other people. And so what we are commanded to do in the scripture is to not be drunk, to not lose self-control of ourselves and what we are doing. And that is, the con- that is the position that is clearly definable in scripture and one that even the world understands makes sense and is wise. And so each one of us are going to apply this position uh, in, a, in a way that makes sense to us. But I want to back up as to what I just said. We are called, we are commanded to be a sober-minded people, to be a people that do not enter into drunkenness, that do not enter into those things that would cause us to lose self-control of ourselves. I hope that is helpful to you. If you have more questions about that, uh, I would be glad to talk to you after the service. I know it's a huge, huge issue, uh, but that is uh, where I stand on that. The second part is so of being sober-minded is that a sober person is also defined as a person that is of a serious disposition. A sober person is someone that's not a, a light-hearted, flippant, foolish person. And when we talk about the things of Christ Jesus, we're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about the eternal destiny of people's souls. We're talking about the self-destruction of a life or a life going towards a goodness and righteousness and wholeness in Christ Jesus. These are not silly, foolish things. These are things that ought to be talked about with a sober mind. And so the Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three is right. Uh, There's a time to laugh. There's a time to have a great time and, and laugh. But I believe that the default position of the Christian life is one of a sober nature. When Jesus came and preached to people, it wasn't with a bunch of jokes. When people walked away from Jesus' preaching, they said, who is this man who preaches with such authority? They didn't go away saying, that guy is hilarious. I love listening to him. That's not a good thing. And so the majority of the message that comes to us from Christ Jesus is a sober message, about the soul, about life, and about death. And so we are to be a sober-minded people, preparing our minds for action, a sober-minded people, and then third, those that set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Those that fully set our hope on Christ Jesus. So when we're directing the energies and the efforts and the thinking of our mind, our hope is not divided between things. Our hope is fully set on Christ Jesus. There are many different things that you can set the hope of your life on. Your job, your economics, a little bit later we'll talk about government. There's all kinds of things. But the scriptures tell us one thing very, very clearly, that our hope is to be fully set upon Christ Jesus. And that everything else is ordered under that hope. And if your hope is not fully set upon Christ Jesus, you will be disappointed. The Christian should be a hopeful person. We can have a lot of different attitudes related to our life. We can be complaining people. We can be grouchy people. We can be discontent people. We can be worried people. All kinds of different things. And we all know different people like that. And we ourselves enter into those things sometimes. But one thing that should characterize us above all things, and that people should say about us, is that we are a hopeful people. Because if Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he is coming again and one day we're gonna pass out of this life into glory, we should be a hopeful people. And so let us be that way, let us speak gladly of Christ Jesus, let our hearts be full of hope for what he has done and what he is doing for us. And when we speak, let our words be seasoned with this hope that we say something about Christ Jesus and we don't falsely act like our hope is in something else. But we say it like it is, that our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that word again, by the way, revelation, who Christ is being revealed to you. We've talked about this in a number of different ways over the past weeks that we can go and we can talk to somebody until we're blue in the face about who Christ Jesus is, but until he awakens their heart and makes himself known to them, they will not value who Jesus is. And so we go and we speak about Jesus, we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are praying that the Lord will reveal himself or make himself known to them that they might see the goodness of everything that we are talking about this morning. Jesus Christ has made his salvation known to us and available. Let us be full of hope. Verse 14, our attitude is to be that of obedient children. Obedient children. This is a consistent analogy all throughout the Bible that God is spoken of as our Father, and we, no matter how old we are, are presented as his children. It's a it's a relationship analogy as to who we are. And it helps children understand what their role is before their parents by understanding our role before God. And we are called before God to be what kind of children? Obstinate children? complaining children whining children disobedient children no we're called to be obedient children and uh you know, if you're raising kids, you know the basic analogy. What, what, what are kids called to? Kids, what are you called to? What type of obedience are you called to as children? You're called to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Those are the three basic terms of obedience. And it should be so with us that when God calls us to something, that our obedience to him is all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. And so we are called to this type of obedience. And in being obedient to God, what does this mean? It means here, as Peter explains, one aspect of our obedience to God is that we are not conformed to former passions. It's the exact same language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12. This idea of being pressed to become something like the world and instead resisting the pressure of the world to not be conformed into the likeness and image of this world as we were beforehand. There's a contrast to be before we were born again to after we were born again. The old person and the new person before in the death of our trespasses and sins to life in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, as obedient children, we are to not be conformed to the things of this world. That's a non-conformist life. Kind of an interesting thing. There's a lot of people that have different ideas when you think about what it means to be a a non-conformist. We're called as Christians to be non-conformist, to be counter-cultural. But the specific nature of that is an ethical non-conforming. It is that ethically what we understand to be right and wrong is different from what the majority of the world understands to be right and wrong. Because right and wrong is defined for us by Almighty God and we are going to seek after him and we're going to obey him no matter what majority poll may say, no matter what a judge may say, no matter what a ruler may say. If it is out of step with what Christ Jesus has said, and by the way, there has always been a out of step aspect to the, the governments and kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God, we must not conform to the things of this world, but that our conduct might be Holy. Uh, The message all next week is gonna relate to the holiness of God and what it means that we are called to walk in holiness. But we are called to live differently, that our words should be different, our attitudes should be different towards others, the way that we treat our enemies, uh, the way that we spend our money, the way that we conduct ourselves sexually, the what we believe about God, that we are going to be a different people a people that are set apart because we have been born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, this is not moralism. Moralism is me telling you, here's five ways that you need to go out and be a better person, and if you do those things good enough, maybe God will be pleased to you, uh, pleased with you. I'm telling you that you are a, a miserable sinner, and that there's nothing that you can commend yourself to God with, that the step number one, is repenting of your sins and believing in Christ Jesus as Lord. And when you are born again, when you are given new life in Christ and you're made new in Jesus and his spirit comes and dwells in your heart, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, and his sanctifying work, that you then make progress to become not only a little bit different, but a radically different person that continues all the way into glory in Christ Jesus. And so, we are called to be different. Putting to death old ways. Other passages of the scripture talk about that. It's an active seeking to put off old things. Considering who we are now in Christ. Not ignorant anymore of the ways of Christ. Understanding what the will of God is. So that we might go out and setting our mind on Christ. Setting our hope on Christ. That we would develop new habits. New friends. New friends new affections, a passion for Christ Jesus that we simply did not have before. And in this, that our life might be marked by holiness. Verse 15, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holiness, uh, we'll spend uh, at length next week talking about this. But you need to understand that the, the closer you draw to a holy God, the more your life will be marked by holiness. Holiness is, is, goes both ways. It's a holiness, which means to be set apart. It's to be set apart from ungodliness. So there's a distance, there's a separation between us and who we used to be in the ungodliness of this world. But we're not set apart to a neutrality. We are set apart unto righteousness. We're set apart to live a righteous life. We don't just sit in neutrality, we run after Christ Jesus. Jesus was not just not bad, he was perfectly good. And so we pass from death unto life, and we pursue the holy righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we are his children, we are being conformed to his image. Well, for weeks I've been talking to you about God's salvation plan, about being born again, about the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, focusing our minds today on Christ, on what it means to live uh, a little bit of what it means to live a non conforming, holy Christian life. But I want to make a clear connection for us this morning between what we've been talking about and our current world situation. Uh, I'm fully aware that we are uh, getting ready to have a major election on Tuesday. Uh, and I also chose not to speak directly about that for a series of reasons today. And I wanna, here's, here's what I want to say about this. I think we are all very aware of the social fracturing that's happening in our time, the rise of violence in our time, the rise of moral wickedness in our time. I just was shocked by yet another story that I read a series of news articles about yesterday, That happened up in Maryland in a grocery store with a woman that was packing her backpack with with groceries and was going to walk out the door and was confronted a number of times by the security guard and wouldn't wouldn't stop, walks out the door. He confronts her in the lobby of this grocery store and she reaches in her backpack one more time and pulls out a pistol and shoots the security guard multiple times. He pulls his gun out, shoots her, and they both die in the lobby of a grocery store. That's just... You just, you just have to stop for a second. Like, wh- what, is, what is happening to us? And an important detail of that story is that because of violence in that area, there was a police substation just two stores down. The cops were there in like 30 seconds. There was, there was all, police all over the place. So what I want you to understand seriously, I understand, and there is, an important role for government. And there's an important role for law enforcement. But you can't pass enough laws and you can't put enough cops on the street to reverse the moral decline of a people. It's impossible. The only hope for our country is people coming to Christ Jesus. People seeing what is being talked about here and repenting of their sins and saying, God help me, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to be a violent, angry, bitter, complaining person. And when I see... The the sinfulness and the wickedness of the people around me. I don't want to be despondent. I want to know that there is hope in this life. And there is. And it comes from Christ Jesus. It comes from fully placing our hope on Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that we should participate in government. I believe that we should vote. And we should be involved with these things. But if your hope is in those things. You're going to be bitterly disappointed. Disappointed. And it's going to lead you down a road that will take you into further despondency instead of hope. And so I want us this morning to participate as we ought to and be thankful for the governance and for the law enforcement that we have in this country. But at the same time, I want our hope to be set on Christ Jesus our Lord. What we see happening in this church, I believe, is a small part of what revival looks like, where people earnestly seek after Christ and good things keep happening. And there is a a sense of the presence of the Lord Jesus and a sense of hope and a sense of joy and a sense of eternity yet to come and something that you wanna go tell your friends and neighbors about because you want them to be involved with. And this is what we pray for in this country. And if the Lord will bring this to us, it will change our community in a way that the passing of laws never can. So let us this morning here in our hearts, let us be obedient unto Christ Jesus. Let us fully set our hope upon him, and let us go out of this place with minds that are girded for action, to go out and to live for Christ Jesus in the world with a hopeful attitude, with a heart set on him. Let's pray together.